0: I'm Christy Shriver and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us.
1: And I'm Gary Shriver and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. For the next two episodes we are going to discuss an author who for me really flies under the radar when we think of literary icons. When you look at the list of the world's greatest writers and/or novels, she is never on those lists. Yet she has sold more books than any other novelist in the world, bar none. Her books collectively in terms of sales rank only after the Holy Bible and the works of uh, William Shakespeare, totaling of basically over 2.3 billion copies sold worldwide. Those kinds of numbers we only talk about when we're talking about Amazon or Google or the national debt of entire countries. <laughs> so True. She is also the author of the single longest-running play ever to play in London's West End. The name of that play, famously, is The Mousetrap. It opened in London's West End in 1952, and it ran continuously until March 16th of 2020, You know what happened. All the stage performances discontinued because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, Performances of the mousetrap restarted on March 17, 2021. And uh, as soon as uh, state restrictions were lifted, they were on again. And in case you haven't figured out who we're talking about yet today, we're discussing the queen of crime Dame Agatha Christie.
0: <laughs> it really truly is impressive how enormous of a body of work that Miss Christie has and how influential her work has become. But for clarification, what does it mean when you say someone is Dame, Agatha Christie? <laughs> well,
1: of course, uh, you know, Dame is the feminine equivalent of Sir. Uh, it, you know, it's been misused in a lot of common parlance. <laughs> and uh, She received an order of Dame Commander of the British Empire in 1971 from Queen Elizabeth II.
0: Oh, wow. That is impressive. However... At the same time, I might add that people far less successful, may I say non recipients of commander titles from Queen Elizabeth II, might scoff at and do scoff at her work. Many critics claim she is not to be taken seriously. Her work isn't sophisticated, it's cliche, yada, yada, yada. They say that in spite of the big numbers. So, Gary, beyond the big $2.3 billion in sales, quantify for us in other ways what the data reveals about Dame Christie.
1: <laughs> well, sure. Uh, first, there's the amount of works that she has produced. She famously wrote 66 detective novels, uh, 14 collections of short stories. That's 150 short stories, as well as over 30 plays. The most famous we already mentioned, which is The Mousetrap. But there are other numbers to consider beyond just how much she produced. Uh, Because of the long-running status of the mousetrap, her name has been in the newspapers of the West End every day without fail, with the exception of 2020, (laughs) since 1952. And by the way, just in case you're doing the math on the performances, that number is somewhere over 25,000 performances of the mousetrap. And and that's just in London's West End. She tried to retire at the age of 75, but her books were selling so well, she said she'd give it five more years. That's optimistic. And she actually (laughs) wrote until one year before her death at age 86. Um, Less famously, she wrote six semi-autobiographical, kind of bittersweet novels under the pseudonym mary westmacott interestingly enough it took 20 years for the world to uncover the identity of mary westmacott (laughs) as being the detective icon agatha christie
0: you know that's a funny fact to me i guess she thought it might ruin her reputation if she was writing sappy books i don't know i've never read any of those but her daughter rosalind hicks had this to say about her mother's romantic books they are not love stories in the general sense of the term, and they certainly have no happy endings. They are, I believe, about love in some its most powerful and destructive forms. Uh, those books were moderately successful in their own right, and Even without her name on the cover, Christy was kind of proud of that accomplishment. But obviously, romance (laughs) is not her forte.
1: (laughs) Well, it is kind of a hard shift, you know, from murder to romance. Uh, But, uh, you know, beyond just the the quantity of work she produced, you know, the amount of it uh, we've consumed as a planet is also incredible. Today, her books are translated in over 100 languages. Uh, 48 million, uh, at least, have watched her movies, including, I might add, the one that is uh, out right now, which is called Death on the Nile. Uh, Here's a numbers fun fact. In 1948, she became the first crime writer to have 100,000 copies of 10 of her titles published by Penguin on the same day. That's what's referred to as the Penguin Million. (laughs)
0: So is that like going platinum in the music industry?
1: Uh, I'd say that's going platinum in a day. (laughs) Uh, Usually the term going platinum refers to selling a million over the course of a lifetime. And doing that in a single day is crazy. And in terms of dollars, I tried to find a good figure, but... I really don't know. I mean, at the time of her death, it's estimated that she was worth over $600 million. But uh, she had incorporated her work in a business, of course, and which, of course, lives on. And it's chaired and managed by um, Agatha Christie's great-grandson, James Pritchard. You know, to me, it's an amazing resume. And I'm not a literary person. So obviously, I'm looking at this a little differently than you might. But I don't see how anyone could realistically contest that she's not a good writer. I mean, it sounds laughable in the face of so much success. If that's not good writing, how could we possibly even measure it?
0: Well, it shows how much you know you'd make a perfectly horrible literary snob. (laughs) Everyone who's anyone knows you can't go by the views of the lowly consumers or the box office.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The proletariat point of view. Oh, as we're always at odds with critics, aren't we? Uh, well, there it is, uh, but just for those of us who don 't know in all seriousness, how can you explain her success away?
0: Well, obviously, no one 's doing that, uh, and it does boil down to how do you define your fiction in one sense. you know, we tend to divide fiction into two broad categories there 's literary fiction and commercial fiction, so obviously, commercial fiction is written to be sold it 's commercial and it 's the reason there 's so many Marvel movies more than I can count on my hands and toes. They sell well, and they're enjoyable to consume. It's why they're multiple versions of basically the same Spider-Man movie, even though my daughters may argue about that. Uh, they're double-digit secrets to Star Wars, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. We consume it because we love it. It's fun, and it defines our culture, the culture of the world in some sense. But there's another sense, and this may be the English teacher nerd, that some of these pieces are unsatisfying over the long term. For example, I don't really want to teach them as works of art in school. There are many books that I enjoy, but I don't care to read more than once. There's many movies. There's songs that I feel the same way about. They're good, but they're not really of literary merit because they don't have any enduring quality to them. On the flip side You know, when you talk about a book that has literary merit, we're looking for something that speaks to man's condition, that expresses universal truths, that reflects something about the world that resonates deeply inside of us, which is why, you know, you can read a book like The Scarlet Letter or Hamlet multiple times and find something new. Or even if it's something that you saw before, you still enjoy reading it and thinking about it. Again, it satisfies the eternal. The knock on Agatha Christie is that they say, the criticism is, that she's full-on commercial fiction. And although there's nothing wrong with that, there's also maybe nothing universally true about anything that she has to say. The critique is that her characters are flat and underdeveloped, even the main ones. The main character in our book is Hercule Poirot. But her other main reoccurring character is a woman named Miss Marble, and both are kind of shallow, honestly. They're featureless, except for maybe being kind of annoying honestly christy investigates crime but she doesn't really investigate any of the existential or moral questions surrounding crime like what are the social causes that leads people to things like this she doesn't explore anything psychological or moral in any real obvious way that's the critic
1: criticism when do you agree with that
0: Well, honestly, a little. (laughs) You can't deny that the characters are flat, and it's absolutely true she doesn't get into any deep discussions about the nature of man. That's on the one side. But having acknowledged that, you know, you have to look at the numbers. And I feel compelled that that must speak to something more deeply.
1: Well, and and just to add to the confusion, uh, we've been poking fun at the uh, hoi polloi here. But uh, from what I read... (laughs) Christie is popular primarily with higher-educated audiences. Um, She's a preferred writer of the world's academic elites.
0: Yeah, she really is, and she has been since she started writing. Uh, You know, don't go by me, but look at the Nobel Prize winner of literature, T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot loved crime fiction, and he loved Agatha Christie. He even wrote about crime fiction from a critical standpoint. Uh, Let me read you his five basic rules that make a good crime detective well, story. Well, I'm sure he's going to
1: lay out exactly <laughs> what we need to know. He is T.S. Eliot, Exactly.
0: After Number one, the story must not rely upon elaborate and incredible disguises. Number two, the character and motives of the criminal should be normal. In the ideal detective story, we should feel that we have a sporting chance to solve the mystery ourselves. If the crime is highly abnormal, an irrational element is introduced, and that offends us. 3. The story must not rely either on occult phenomena or what comes to the same thing, upon mysterious and preposterous discoveries made by lonely scientists. 4. Elaborate and bizarre machinery is an irrelevance. And 5. The detective should be highly intelligent but not superhuman. We should be able to follow his inferences and almost but not quite Make them with him,
1: huh, that's a that's a complicated set of rules there, but uh, I think I must agree with the Nobel Prize winner, you know Me too. Uh, we do intuitively feel that way about a good crime novel. So taking Elliot's list as the standard or the rubric for crime novels, uh, should that have different standards in other books, or rather, you know, like no insight to life or theme necessary?
0: <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Uh, I think anything that lasts 100 years, as does this book that we're going to discuss, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, it turns 100 in June of 2026. Anything that people are reading for that long must be saying something. So the mystery of the mystery novel is what resonates in our souls with these words.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, a little irony there, huh?
0: Yes, and before we get into the nitty-gritty about what makes this particular book great, and make no mistake, it is considered great. The 2013 Crimes Writers Association claimed that The Murder of Roger Ackroyd to be the greatest crime novel of all times. Now, it doesn't get any bigger than a shout-out than that. I personally haven't read enough crime novels to contest them. But before we talk about it, I want to talk about Christie's life and Bring ourselves up to speed just a little bit about how this book came about. She herself has a mystery embedded in her life story. Well,
1: we would expect no <laughs> less, okay? Uh, but I will say one thing I do enjoy about these books, and uh, that is that uh, at least the ones I've read are often set in this, you know, very English, very Victorian setting, and there's some fun in that.
0: True, and you can't say that Christy doesn't write about what she knows she was born in Torquay in 1890. Torquay is a seaside town on the southeastern side of the UK. I saw an article that called it the English Riviera. It's a resort town. Once even Elizabeth Barrett Browning was sent there to recover her health. Uh, Christie's family was an upper middle class family. They were financially well off, but you know, not limitlessly wealthy An interesting thing to note is that her family did not approve of her learning and did not want her to read until she was eight. It seems the general attitude of the time is that smart girls might have trouble finding a good husband. (laughs) Do you want to speak to that one? Oh,
1: you know, being a smart girl might help her find... (laughs) Or Avoid a bad husband, but uh, uh, I would like to say that I do find smart women immeasurably attractive.
0: Well, thank you, darling. (laughs) In her case, there was no holding even little Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller, that's her maiden name, back. Apparently, she just picked up on reading all by herself and eventually... Her nurse had to confess that, oh, dear, Akiva has indeed learned to read.
1: (laughs) Oh, my. There's a rebel. Uh, Well, why did they relinquish and let her go to school at that point?
0: Well, they did, depending on what you mean by school. She went to school when she turned 15, but she was sent to finishing school in Paris. I could have used that support probably. honestly. (laughs) But at Mrs. Dryden's finishing school, she studied singing and piano playing. This is what Christie herself had to say about it years later. I'm hazy now as to how long I renamed at Mrs. Dryden's. A year, perhaps 18 months. I do not think it was as long as two years. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, not reading Voltaire or Flaubert.
0: <laughs> well, uh, maybe she did, but she wasn't forced to. Uh, reading was not only her rebellious streak, by the way. This is where it gets really interesting. In 1914, Agatha met fell in love with, and became engaged on Christmas Eve to the man of her dreams, a very handsome war pilot named Archie Christie. Unfortunately, this was not the match her mother had sent her to finishing school to find.
1: (laughs) Well, what was wrong with him?
0: Well, certainly not his looks or personality. He had that covered. His problem was obvious. He had no money, but they married, And a few months later, little Rosalind made her entrance into the world. During World War I, Archie went off to war. Agatha stayed home, trained, and worked as a nurse in the local Red Cross Hospital there in her hometown of Torquay. And let me add, this is where she got her start learning. And you notice this if you read her books. Everything she knows about drugs. She was quite proficient in them. In 56 of her novels, there are over 200 references to specific and individual drugs.
1: Mm. So, you know, can we expect uh, that a large number of her characters will get poisoned?
0: Well, not necessarily, although that is a thing. Uh, The most commonly dispensed drugs for Miss Christie were the sedatives. And, of course, if you think about it, it's to be expected. Uh, You should have something on hand to calm you down if you're going to, you know murder someone <laughs> it's a little disturbing <laughs> you might need something to help you get to sleep but beyond uh, the sedatives uh, there are pain relievers and stimulants and blood pressure medications and barbiturates and even antidotes to other poisons
1: wow well of course our book which is the murder of roger ackroyd has three drugs liniment for a knee problem how does that sound deadly <laughs> Tonic is a stimulant and, of course, veronal, which is the cause of a lethal overdose early in the story.
0: Yes, there's your deadly one. Well, anyway, after the war in 1920 and after six rejections, she finally got her first real novel published and she was paid £25. Not a huge risk on the part of the publisher there. <laughs> The title of that book was *The Mysterious Affair at Styles*, and it introduced to the world a five foot four Belgian who would charm and annoy readers for over a hundred years, Hercule cool Poirot. It did well, but her breakout novel would not be until her third novel, and it came out in the summer of 1926. It was a bestseller and launched her into the stardom from which she would never return. It's remarkable, but honestly, it's not even the most interesting thing that happened to her that year.
1: (laughs) Oh, I'm not sure how you're going to top becoming a bestseller. This must be a great story.
0: I know, but I'm going to best it. So the story goes, year 1926 in general starts out a little rough. Agatha's mother, and this is a woman who had been very dependent on her daughter emotionally, died in April. This was devastating for Agatha. So while she was with, well, she was with her daughter Rosalind, but while she was at her mother's estate, Archie drops the news that he had fallen in love with another woman by the name of Nancy Neal and he wanted a divorce. Agatha said no. She was deeply in love with him, and she wasn't going to give him a divorce. Well, her book comes out. It's successful, but that doesn't end the, de- the drama. On December 3, later on that year, Archie informed Agatha that he just didn't want to be married to her, and he wasn't going to be married to her. Uh, and to and reinforce this idea, he explains that he, for that weekend, was going to go off with Mrs. Nell, and so he did. Agatha did not receive the news well. And this is where the mystery begins. And it does sound a little bit like one of a story that she might write. So here it goes. At 9.45 p.m., we know that Agatha left the house in her car after having written three letters. One to her secretary, Charlotte Fisher, one to Archie, and one to Archie's brother, Campbell.
1: Huh. You know, so far, I feel like I'm listening to an explanation by (laughs) Poirot himself.
0: I know. And it's going to get strange. Agatha does not return home. In fact, she's missing for 11 days. The next day, they find her car crashed in a tree above a local quarry with the headlights still on. Her fur coat was in the car, as well as a small suitcase and an expired driver's license. There's no blood anywhere in the car. There's no skid marks on the road like you would expect if she'd been driving too fast and had an accident. Finally, the gear shift was in neutral, the way we put it when we're pushing the car and not driving it. It made no sense, but Agatha was gone, and the world went nuts. The numbers vary depending on what article you read, but up to a 1,000 police officers were dispatched on four continents looking for her. 15,000 volunteers, fans, amateur detectives all joined the hunt. Airplanes were involved, diving equipment, even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. That's Sherlock Holmes. He tried to help by getting Christie's glove to his median for a consultation to see if she can
1: find her. <laughs> well, I'm guessing no, they did not find her.
0: No, she was not in the afterlife. Everyone around the world was looking for this mystery writer. Can you imagine? (laughs) Archie, you know, comes back from his weekend activity, which quite likely I've read was an engagement party a a friend threw for him and Nancy. He found a totally different world. I mean, he thought he was going back to fight with Agatha, not to become a potential murder (laughs) suspect. He also found his letter. And this is what's curious. He read it and burned it immediately. To this day, no one has any idea what she wrote in that letter. His brother Campbell, by the way, got his later. And strangely again, Campbell's letter was postmarked on Saturday. That's the day after Agatha went missing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this, this does sound like Poirot, and I'm starting to need to employ my uh, little gray cells just to keep up. <laughs>
0: well, Exactly. What secret did Campbell carry? Who knows? Because he also got rid of his letter. Nobody knows what was in that one. Everything seemed to indicate that Archie had murdered his wife. The police dragged pawns. They searched everywhere. It was in every newspaper on the planet until on December 14th, Two musicians report that they see Miss Christie at a luxury spa called the Harrogate Hydro. She had checked in into the hotel days before, and guess this: she checked in under the name Mrs. Teresa Neal. Now, remember, Archie's gal was named Mrs. Neal.
1: Oh my gosh, <laughs> she is good, isn't she? I mean, this honestly sounds exactly like something that she would do, right? I mean, was she play acting?
0: Well, we will never know. This mystery, I'm sorry to say, is unsolved. Christy had told the people at the spa that she had arrived from South Africa. She played pool. She danced. She read mysteries in the hotel library. She didn't act disturbed at all. And here's an even stranger turn of events. Archie covered for when she got busted. After, you know, they found her in this luxury hotel after the world had gone nuts looking for her, you know, people accused her of pulling a publicity stunt and using public resources to do it. But Archie helped dispel the criticism. He called in two doctors. They interviewed Agatha and arrived at the conclusion that Agatha Christie suffered an episode of temporary amnesia. It's the stress of her mother's death, the success of her new book, the divorce. It all led to a nervous breakdown. The only thing she ever admitted to was having been in a car crash. But even that is kind of suspect. She had no bruises to show for any of it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, after the bitterness of paying all those uh, police overtime, can we say all is well that ends well?
0: Well, maybe for Agatha, but not Archie. I mean... The scandal sold gobs of books and basically cemented her celebrity, but it portrayed Archie as a terrible person. (laughs) How terrible for a man to cause his famous wife, the queen of crime, to have a nervous breakdown. I mean, he was portrayed as the world's biggest schmuck. And Nancy? Nancy Neal's family was so embarrassed that they sent her on a round-the-world trip for 10 months trying to get her away from Archie.
1: Hmm. So... Did you buy her story that she had amnesia?
0: Personally, I find it a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think she may have gotten angry, ran off, and then things got crazy. I did read that she was completely shocked by how, you know, the police reacted and the story blew up. She never imagined that that would have happened. I mean, who would have? But do you think it's legit?
1: Oh, obviously she was not convinced of her own celebrity <laughs> at that point, you no, know, I how don't wide reach so. it was. And, You know, it does seem a little far-fetched. And to be the world's most famous detective novelist, I'd say it's very convenient that she could come (laughs) up with such a thing. You know, but I'm going to keep an open mind. I mean, isn't that what Hercule Poirot would want us to do? I mean, the question uh, I have is what were in those letters that she left for Archie and Campbell that they had to burn right away?
0: I know, we do need Hercule Poirot, because as he would remind us, nothing is ever concealed to him. He would have gotten to the bottom of it. Oh,
1: no doubt. All right, so are we ready to beat Hercule Poirot and open the murder of Roger Ackroyd?
0: I think so, and we do need to make an important disclaimer... This episode, we are not going to spoil the book by telling you who the murderer is, but next episode, we will. So if you're starting the book now and listening to this in real time, you have a week, but you only have a week. <laughs> this week, we're going to look at the book from the perspective of understanding how Christie was adhering very cleverly to the conventions of what we traditionally call a formal detective novel, otherwise known as the whodunit It? Edgar Allan Poe is credited for creating the detective story, but of course, most of us think of Sir Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes and his sidekick Watson as being the kind of iconic example of what a story like this looks like. Agatha Christie is basically going to follow their same pattern, but take it from the short story form to a much longer novel form. As we might expect per the convention of the trade, we're going to open up our story in an English country house. Think of every Clue movie ever. But in this case, there's already been one murder, but not the one from the title. So let's read the opening couple of paragraphs of our story.
1: Mrs. Ferrars died on the night of the 16th, 17th, September, a Thursday. I was sent for at 8 o'clock on the morning of Friday the 17th. There was nothing to be done. She had been dead some hours It was just a few minutes after nine when I reached home once more. I opened the front door with my latch key and purposely delayed a few moments in the hall, hanging up my hat and the light overcoat that I had deemed a wise precaution against the chill of an early autumn morning. To tell the truth, I was considerably upset and worried. I am not going to pretend that at the moment I foresaw the events of the next few weeks— From the dining room on my left, there came the rattle of teacups and the short, dry cough of my sister Caroline. Is that you, James, she called? An unnecessary question, since who else could it be?
0: (laughs) You know, here we are meeting the narrator who's going to walk us through our story, Dr. James Shepard and his meddling sister Caroline. You can tell that they have that kind of brother sisterly relationship. <laughs> Caroline, by the way, is going to be the prototype for Miss Marple, Christie's other detective. But since the opening murder isn't the murder from the title, we know this isn't you know the murder that we're supposed to be focused on. I do want to say that another characteristic of these formal detective stories is that we don't have emotional connections to any of the characters of the story. We are not made to feel upset in the least that there's been a murder here. At no point in the story at all do we feel sad about anything. We don't feel sad when the victims die or when people get falsely accused. We don't feel angry either. In fact, there aren't any negative emotions at all. We're really even led to find the perpetrator, you know, not a terribly terrible person at the end.
1: (laughs) Well, I think that may be one of the appeals of this kind of writing. I mean, we feel enough anger and guilt or sadness in real life, and uh, these books may be relaxing because we don't have to be emotionally stressed out about anything. Uh, You know, we can just enjoy the process of the puzzle, and we know the murder is going to get solved, and and all is going to be set right in the world, so really it's just a matter of watching everything unfold.
0: Well, true. And although there is fun in trying to guess who did it and follow the clues, I'll be honest, I didn't figure out who the murderer was. And I basically never do when I read these. I barely even try. And I really don't think most people do either by what T.S. Eliot tells us in his rules.
1: (laughs) I can tell you I'm in that camp for sure. (laughs) I don't even begin to pretend to think that I could sort it out. So, uh, you know, kind of like when someone tells you a riddle, you're likely to give it about 30 seconds, and then you want to tell them, you want the answer from them about what the riddle is.
0: I think it's exactly like that.
1: But, you know, it's funny, by Chapter 2, we meet the man who will be murdered... Roger Ackroyd, uh, King's Abbott, which is the name of this village, apparently has several very wealthy people, uh, one of which is already dead, Mrs. Ferrars. The other is getting ready to die, Roger Ackroyd, and the crime scene will be Mr. Ackroyd's house, which is Fernley Park, of course, and for me, one of the hardest parts of this book is keeping straight in my mind all these characters and uh, and that will eventually become suspects.
0: Well, that is the hard part and that's one of the most important elements of this entire game. We have to keep straight who each of these suspects are and so we can focus not only on whether they have opportunity And means, but if they have a motive.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And we meet the cast of suspects here at the beginning. I mean, there's uh, Mrs. Russell, the housekeeper, there's the two female relatives. Uh, A sister-in-law and her beautiful daughter, Mrs. Cecil Aykroyd and Flora. We don't meet, but we find out about Ralph Patton, who is Mr. Aykroyd's adopted son, who seems to have a reputation for being irresponsible with money and women, but uh, who will be heir to the fortune. Uh, When our narrator, Dr. Shepard, meets Roger Aykroyd on the road, Aykroyd is extremely upset.
0: Let's read that encounter.
1: Shepard, he exclaimed, just the man I wanted to get hold of. This is terrible business. You've heard then. He nodded. He had felt the blow keenly. I could see his big red cheeks seemed to have fallen in and he looked a positive wreck of his usual jolly, healthy self. It's worse than you know, he said quietly. Look here, Shepard. I've got to talk to you. Can you come back with me now? Hardly. I've got three patients to see still, and I must be back by 12 to see my surgery patients. Then this afternoon, no, better still, dine tonight at 730. Will that suit you? Yes, I can manage that all right. What's wrong? Is it Ralph? I hardly knew why I said that, except perhaps that it had so often been Ralph.
0: And here you see an example of Christie's writing style that we find so charming, the narrator here takes us into his confidence with these little aside comments. So we as readers are find him charming and endearing, and we find ourselves, as we read the story, trusting Dr. Shepard's understanding of the murder. One reason particularly is because we are in his confidence, and we feel like we develop an intimacy with him.
1: Uh, true. And, and although I will say uh, another reason we trust him is because the detective Hercule Poirot. Uh, takes him so often into his confidence. I mean, Dr. Shepard goes everywhere and helps with the investigation from start to finish. And he's kind of like Watson to Sherlock Holmes.
0: True. And we see that this cast of characters looks remarkably like a lot of cast of characters from this, what we call the golden age of the detective story. And we have stock characters like we see in a clue game. We have the damsel in distress. We've already met her. That's Flora. We're going to have the house staff, and they're always keeping secrets, and that makes them suspicious. Besides Miss Russell, there's a man by the name of Jeffrey Raymond, Roger Ackroyd's secretary. There's Ursula Bourne. She's a housemaid. There's John Parker, the butler.
1: (laughs) Of course, the butler in the library with the candlesticks, (laughs) (laughs) uh, you know, to which we say, uh, is that your guess? Uh, For those of you who don't know, that's how you play the game of Clue. I'm sure most people have played it.
0: (laughs) Oh, it's so true. But when you get to Chapter 5, Dr. Shepard gets the call to come over to the house to inspect the body because there has been a murder. We already have all of our suspects lined up and ready to go.
1: Well, and although this next feature isn't in a game of Clue, we can't overlook the buffoon policeman who will be foils to our eccentric but brilliant detective Inspector Davis, who comes over initially, and then later on, Inspector Raglan of uh, our members of the law enforcement community.
0: Oh, yes. And we can't fail to mention the silent, almost brooding Major Hector Blunt, our visiting military man, who, although never really is a suspect in this particular murder, does have an important role in the story because, nonetheless, he is secretly in love with Flora. And this would not be a classic detective story without the romantic
1: love interest somewhere. (laughs) You know, it's almost like we're not reading a drama at all. In some ways, these books feel more like sitcoms.
0: Yes, that is it exactly. And I want to make this point. A formal detective novel of this tradition is not a tragedy at all. In fact, it meets the criteria of what we would call a comedy. If you remember from our series on Romeo and Juliet, we talked about the difference between a comedy and a tragedy. A comedy ends in marriage, and a tragedy ends in death. From a literary standpoint, an Agatha Christie novel and those that are modeled after hers are popular precisely because they are comedies cloaked as tragedies. It's a trick. <laughs> The characters serve comedic purposes, not thematic ones. That's why it's okay that they're pretty much the same stock characters in every story. The story would be totally different and in fact would be a completely different genre if we didn't have every assurance life would end well. Let me explain what I mean. So recently, Lizzie and I watched together the Netflix movie, The Woman in the Window. Lizzie had just finished uh, the novel by the same name, by A.J. Flynn, and really liked it and wanted to watch the movie. It's also a murder mystery, but totally different in purpose and genre. And The Woman in the Window, the characters are serious. They struggle with anxiety and depression. The characters themselves are meant to be deeply analyzed, and that's really the whole point. Ben is commenting on issues of mental health. That is not Christie's purpose at all. It would take away from the fun, really, if she went in that direction. In comedies, only the unlikable characters ever really suffer anything terrible. And Roger Ackroyd, although we don't get to know him very well, isn't a likable person. He's selfish. He's stingy. And we're going to find out that he's forcing Ralph and Flora to get married against their will. In fact, we find out at the end that Ralph is actually already secretly married to the parlor maid and Aykroyd finds out and loses his mind. In chapter six, Dr. Shepard describes Aykroyd as having a caloric temper. And although it's never good to murder people just because they're disagreeable, let me make that clear, It's worth pointing out that Christie goes to no trouble to make Ackroyd likable in any way. The point being, we don't really care that Ackroyd's been murdered at all. There's nothing tragic to feel about it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, so the fun of every chapter is really following Hercule Poirot around, uh, interviewing all the witnesses and seeing if we can figure out before he does who the murderer is, uh, who has the most compelling reason to do it. And it will turn out that almost everyone stands to gain something from his death.
0: Exactly. Except, remember, we don't figure it out. And if Christie's success is any indication, I don't think almost anyone in the last hundred years has figured it out before Perot. During my second reading of the book, and I will say, these are fun books to read twice, uh, I read it again after I already knew who killed Roger Ackroyd. I realized that Perot must have had this murder soft well before, I think probably before chapter 17.
1: <laughs> you know, I want to revisit that, but before we do, let's flesh out uh, a little about our heroic detective. I mean, this isn't the first book where she introduces Poirot, but I was surprised to see that. He was retired. I didn't expect that uh, precisely because I knew she wrote 66 novels. And I had heard of this funny little man, as he is described.
0: Well, and he is a funny little man. He's obnoxious and ridiculous. And the way Christy introduces him is funny, too. Hercule moves into the house next door to Dr. Shepard and his sister, Caroline. They're both unmarried. James is a doctor. And Caroline's main occupation is the local purveyor of gossip something she seems to conduct through a very sophisticated network of servants and friends. Dr. Shepard is always acting annoyed by her, but he also seems very impressed with her mad dog skills. Anyway, before we meet Perot, we are led to believe by Dr. Shepard that the mysterious neighbor next door must be a hairdresser, as evidenced by his perfectly groomed mustache.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that mustache, as you say, uh, is what he's famous for, uh, that and his egg-shaped head, you know, whatever that looks like. But according to Christie, um, he was inspired by a Belgian refugee that she saw coming off of a bus after the First World War. Of course, uh, all of the inspiration was external, and she never met the gentleman personally. But uh, she took that inspiration and created a short man with a distinguished mustache, a solid head of black hair, and an egg-shaped head. (laughs) You know, She wanted him to have, as she called it, a grand, eloquent name, hence her cool. And uh, she wanted him to be very orderly and brilliant, but also vain. And after a while, she says she came to be resentful that she was stuck with him since she didn't like him very much, but she created him.
0: Well, funny enough, at one point in her career, she killed him off, but her publishers refused to publish the book.
1: (laughs) She killed Hercule? I mean, and that never got published?
0: Well, eventually did, but we'll leave that story for next week.
1: (laughs) Okay, all right. Well, something to look forward to. Uh, But back to our book. If you are a Christie fan, you'll know immediately that the mysterious hairdresser is none other than our sleuth. If this is your first Christie book, you may not, but it doesn't matter. By Chapter 8, he's in the mix, having been hired by Flora to figure out who killed her uncle.
0: Well, by Chapter 6, we've also introduced a rogue stranger with a mysterious accent, who we know from years of experience with other detective novels and movies could not possibly be the murderer. He's too much of a ruffian. We all know that our criminal, although technically a criminal by virtue of murdering someone, will have no noticeable criminal behaviors. In fact, he likely will have impeccable manners, just like everyone else in the story. We won't experience any bloody murder scenes here, by the way. There will be no harsh language. The investigation will be polite, and the word unpleasantness will be a euphemism of choice to describe anything from a dagger in the neck to an awkward question. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, speaking of the dagger to the neck, uh, I'm assuming that a um, spectacular weapon of choice is also a characteristic of this formal detective style. Well,
0: it absolutely is.
1: (laughs) Well, and ours does not disappoint. We have a Tunisian one of a kind dagger. Let's read about it. It was indeed a beautiful object, a narrow, tapering blade, and a hilt of elaborately intertwined metals of curious and careful workmanship. He touched the blade gingerly with his finger, testing its sharpness, and made an appreciative grimace. Lord, what an edge, he exclaimed. A child could drive that into a man as easy as cutting butter. A dangerous sort of toy to have about.
0: And of course, the gloriousness of all the details is uh, the best part. In fact, that's one reason I never even attempt to solve these murders. It tires me to weed through all of the details. There's a diagram of the study, the specifics of when Dr. Shepard left, when he was called back, when Flora last heard from her uncle where everyone was at exactly the time of the murder, the phone call, the footprint, the in and out of the garden house over and over again, all of it laid out before us with commensurate British precision. The pieces of the puzzle are completely spread out on the table for us to order them again. The universe that Christie creates, some have called claustrophobic because it's small and contained, but that's what's great about it. It's knowable, ordered, And most importantly, it's benevolent. These people are good, likely even the murderer. Of course, they're trying to get away with little lies and deceptions because Victorian society is very demanding. But even the murderer is not going to walk away from it all willingly. He or she will only leave as a final resort. This world is rational and sensible, and one where even we as readers can find comfort.
1: Huh? Hard to believe all of that in a murder scene. But, (laughs) you know, from a historical perspective, uh, I find that extremely important. Uh, If you recall, uh, England, or rather Europe in general, was nothing like what you described. It was not predictable. It was not benevolent people were being exiled, wars were raging, uh, governments were in upheaval, poverty was rampant. You know, what a wonderful escape and promise of possibility. You know, write a story with a well-ordered upper-class environment where the rules apply, and if you break them, you get exiled. You know, I would say um, the rigid formality came across as comforting and peaceful to people of that time period, not boring and predictable.
0: Well, I guess you're probably right about that, you know. Like I said, the book is really best read twice, if you want my opinion. Uh, it's a very carefully crafted puzzle, so when you read it the first time, you can enjoy it as the straightforward whodunit that it is. But when you read it the second time, knowing who the murderer is, it's even more interesting to watch how Christy deceives us. Nothing is ever hidden, but her duplicitous way of writing deceives us from start to finish, and there's a delight in watching her do it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, Christy, getting us back to the difference between commercial fiction uh, versus literary fiction, you said you think that there is a theme in her work. So, you know, without giving away the murderer, can you speak to what it is in this episode?
0: Yeah, I think we can get started. There are several, but one I think does speak to this idea of finding value in a well-ordered world. One of the most memorable scenes in the entire book is chapter 16. When I read it the first time, I had no idea why it was included. For most of the book, we're following Perrault around, looking at clues, interrogating witnesses, but chapter 16 is different. It's pretty much in the center of the book. I mean, physically in the center. Shepard and his sister Caroline spend an evening playing mahjong with local friends, a retired army officer, Colonel Carner, and a woman named Mrs. Gannett, neither of which have anything to do, at least as far as I can tell. They enjoy coffee, cake, sandwiches, tea, and they sit down to play. The main purpose of the evening really is to collect gossip, but sitting around and doing that on its own would be vulgar, and no one in King's Abbot is vulgar. So an exotic game from the Far East is a wonderful excuse. They go through the hands, and we realize in some ways, playing this game is a lot like living life. They talk about how each person expresses something about themselves by how they play. They can express weakness or strength, an ability to perceive, an ability to make decisions. Sometimes the hand you're given is a wreck. Sometimes you get a winning hand effortlessly, at one point, Caroline very astutely, yet unconsciously, comments that Miss Gannon isn't playing like she thinks she should. Gary, do you know how to play Marjong?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I do not. I mean, it looks fascinating, and of course, I've seen it featured in several movies. Uh, just from looking at the external features, it appears to be a little bit like Rummy, except with tiles.
0: I have to confess, I don't know how to play either. But at this point in the game, Caroline points out that Miss Gannett's hand wasn't worth going Mahjong over. Miss Gannett responds to Caroline's criticism by saying, yes, dear, I know what you mean, but it rather depends on what kind of hand you have to start with, doesn't it? Caroline replies, you'll never get the big hands if you don't go for them. To which Miss Gannett replies, well, we must all play our own way, mustn't we? After all, I'm up so far. (laughs) This goes on and on for an entire chapter of the women gossiping attention going in and out of the game, but let's read the part where we finally get to the end and someone wins.
1: The situation became more strained. It was annoyance at Miss Gannett's going mahjong for the third time running, which prompted Caroline to say to me as we built a fresh wall, you are too tiresome, James. "'You sit there like a deadhead and say nothing at all.' "'But, my dear,' I protested. "'I have really nothing to say that is of the kind you mean.' "'Nonsense,' said Caroline, as she sorted her hand. "'You must know something interesting.' "'I did not answer for a moment. "'I was overwhelmed and intoxicated. "'I had read of there being such a thing as the perfect winning, "'going mahjong on one's original hand. "'I had never hoped to hold the hand myself.' With suppressed triumph, I laid my hand face upwards on the table, and as they say in the Shanghai club, I remarked, Tin Ho, the perfect winning. The colonel's eyes nearly bulged out of his head.
0: <laughs> and so there you have it. Dr. Shepard has been tight-lipped the entire book, which for us as his partners in crime, so to speak, because, you know, we're following along in his head, gets frustrating. He always knows more than he says, but he's a medical man and he feels compelled to keep people's confidences until this night. Right after this big win, he is so exhilarated, he blurts out to everyone everything Perot had been telling him the previous day about the specific ring. Perot had kept it entirely out of sight for everyone else, but had revealed it only to Dr. Shepard. Now Dr. Shepherd is getting the world's biggest gossips, the biggest scoop that they'd had yet so far.:
1: And so, uh, where's the theme? I don't see it. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm not English, so I'm going to make a disclaimer that this could be a very American interpretation, but it seems to me that Christie is making a commentary on how society functions best. Mahjong is a communal game with strict rules, but it is indeed about community, very much like the society she has built for us here for her readers. Although Shepherd claims that all they do in King's Abbot is gossip, we see through every chapter that's not true. There's a very active local pub that everyone goes to. They garden, they visit. This is a true community. And yet they are indeed winners and losers. Miss Gannett isn't good at Mahjong because she's too independent, maybe impulsive. Shepherd has a good bit of luck, but he also lets it go to his head and he blurts out things at the end he probably shouldn't have. At least he regrets it by the beginning of the next chapter. I don't know. I just think she may be advocating to the rest of us who may find rules stifling, the traditional ways boring, or conventions cumbersome, that there just might be something of value in the vintage, something comforting and enjoyable in a well-ordered and fair universe. But like I said, that's just one idea. There's more. And they are definitely arguable.
1: (laughs) Hmm, Indeed. And with that, we will leave off for today. Thank you all for listening. We always like to encourage you to uh, follow us on our social media. We also like to encourage you to check out our website at howtolovelitpodcast.com. Once again, thanks for being with us.
0: Peace out.